Good morning. How are you guys? Glad to have you. Let me pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you for this season. We thank you for remembering your coming. We thank you for your promises, all the promises that we've read and we've heard as we've walked with you and through your scriptures and how they have come about and how they also will come about. So I pray that you would sort of give us that sense this morning of not only looking to the present, but we look at, be looking to the future of what we have in you and what, what we have to hope for in the future. We praise you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are creator and sustainer of all that there is. And that you are bringing this world to a wonderful end. We thank you that you are full of grace and full of mercy. We thank you also that you are the great conqueror. That you are the judge that judges with righteousness and equity. And we praise you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, carols, which, you know, we just sung a few carols. Carols are songs that are specifically sort of, uh, you know, ascribed to Christmas, right? And um, Isaac Watts, if you know his name, his, his famous work, Joy to the World, he wrote that. One of our most popular carols of, of all times, probably, was that song actually was not intended to be a carol when he wrote it. Um, born in 1864, uh, Watts penned a massive collection of 750 songs uh, that, that are still being used by Christians worldwide now. And Watts obsessively sort of sought to put his Christian convictions and affections down on paper so that other people could join him in worship, uh, which was admirable, right? And, uh, but his work was not always well-received because he was really introducing, at, in his time, uh, contemporary praise and worship, if you want to call it that. The song selection in most Protestant churches of his time was strictly limited to the Psalms, all right? So you're just singing the Psalms. And John Calvin, during the Re- Reformation, had translated the Psalms into uh, just everyday common French so that people could sing them corporately. English-speaking churches followed suit. They did the same thing. And Watts was introducing sort of extra-biblical poetry into his songs. And to some, that was anathema. That was just the wrong thing to do. But to others, it was really a breath, breath of fresh air. And we're, you know, on the other side of that now. His goal was to wed, wed sort of this emotional subjectivity uh, with this doctrinal objectivity, Right? So, so songs such as when I survey the wondrous when I survey the wondrous cross, alas, did my savior savior bleed? Uh, I sing the mighty power of God and O oh God, our help in ages past. These were all uh, meant to be a blend of personal reflection and emotional reaction, couched in a rich theological conviction. And his songs put the old wine of faith into new wineskins of English rhyme and poetry, giving new life to church worship for many people. And like Calvin did of his, in his day, Watts also published a whole book, a work, in 1719, which was a translation or a rewriting of the Psalms for congregational singing. And it had the lengthy title, listen to this title, The Psalms of David, Imitated in the Language of the New Testament and Applied to Christian State and Worship. <laughs> so uh, 
what that just means that he was reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, and he wrote his psalm book to explicitly sort of point to the person and the work of Jesus, right? And in that collection, we find this rewriting of Psalm 98, which is the song Joy to the World. And the opening line of Joy to the World is sometimes sung incorrectly by churches. They sing Joy to the World, the Lord has come, but he wrote the Lord is come, right? Watts wasn't describing the past event of Jesus' birth, but he was looking forward to Jesus' return his second coming, right? The main point of Psalm 98, which he understood, was not about the first coming of Jesus. Rather, it was about the second coming of Christ, which is precisely what that whole song's about. It speaks of Jesus' final coming to the earth when the Savior reigns and when he rules the, wor- the world with truth and grace, right? And Watts long for that glorious sort of final day when the nations will prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, as he wrote in that song. Now, even though Watts uh, may not have ever envisioned his song becoming a Christmas carol, uh, it's a wonderful tribute to his work nonetheless, right? the, The first advent of Jesus, you know, certainly stands as a historical guarantee that the that, that the second advent will come, the second coming of Christ will, will indeed show up, right? And the, so the birth of Jesus and the return of, of Jesus are good news of great joy uh, for all people, right? And we, we know that. Now, we've been talking for the last four or five weeks about uh, the exiles returning to Jerusalem to relearn how to worship God during the time of Nehemiah. And the exiles had come back to a world that was quite foreign, you know, and different for them. And they needed a reminder of how to celebrate God's work and all the new ways that he was showing faithfulness to provide them hope because they needed hope. And we too find our way back to worship and trusting uh, God's presence when we learn to open our eyes to the marvelous ways that God has brought us victory. But now and in the future as well, And we should acknowledge that standing on this side of history, we have a great deal to be grateful for. We're on this side of the the first coming of Christ. Watts knew that Psalm 98 speaks to God's faithfulness and the hope that we have in the promises of God and the promises that we find in Christ. So do yourself a favor. I want you to close your eyes and let these words wash over your soul as I read God's word from Psalm 98. It says this. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with harp, with harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth 
He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Period. Victory is sort of key in this passage if you think about it. The psalmist speaks to the power of God, uh, of victory that God has provided for the returning exiles, right? Initially, salvation related just to Israel, but also in this future sense, he's saying that salvation will apply to all the nations of the earth as, you know, as we see it stated in verses 1 and 3, right? 1 through 3. The language, therefore, is both present and future as they read these things reiterating God's overwhelming plan throughout the scriptures of not only saving Israel in their moment where they needed salvation, they needed to be restored, but in the culmination of time when all nations will stand before his throne at the end of days. Hearkening ahead to when he reveals his righteousness to the nations, when the, when the, when, when, to when the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God from corner to corner to corner to corner, right? And that is kingdom language. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has not yet fully come. And that's where we live right now. And if you listen to that psalm, you can hear that God is moving history towards a glorious end when justice and equity will reign with His righteousness known everywhere to everybody. Nobody will be able to, be able to deny it. And this, therefore, could be one of the songs that we sing together when Christ returns in glory. Think about that day. Wouldn't that be cool? Now, having this psalm read over you, uh, allowing it to seep into your soul, to get into your bones, reading it, rereading it, the picture becomes more and more clear of a victorious God over all of history. Creator, sustainer of the universe and all that is in it right? Leading to the final culmination of evil's defeat, of sin's defeat. Every tear wiped away, as Revelations tells us. Every, right, every wrong righted, and that is going to be a great day. I can't even imagine that, right? I don't think any of us can. That what he set out to accomplish and what he's promised all along in the Garden of Eden with the promise of a coming Messiah that would crush the head of Satan, would crush this rebellion, would happen. That's our hope. Or what he promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that he would bless him to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, would actually come about. Or the unconditional covenant through which God promises David that the Messiah would come from his line, from his lineage, and establish an everlasting kingdom on this earth would occur. These are God's promises. And like the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant was unconditional. Remember, the law came 450 years after Abraham, right? So, the grace was shown before the law ever showed up. The law is not, we know we can't measure up to the law. The, so this was all, this Davidic covenant was unconditional, just like the Abrahamic covenant was, because God does not place conditions of obedience upon fulfillment of his promises. It's not up to us, right? We cannot be obedient enough to the, to, to the law of, of God that we would earn his promises. His promises are just promises. And I don't think we all 
really grasp that totally, right? For instance, <clears throat> if you look at the Abrahamic covenant, right, back in Genesis 12 uh, and Genesis 15 and a couple other places, in ancient times, if, if a king conquered another king, they would cut, literally cut a covenant in what was called a suzerain vassal treaty, right? And they would sacrifice animals and they would cut them in two, in, in half, and then they would create this, they would lay them down opposite in this bloody aisle down on, on the ground. And then those two kings, those two parties, would walk down that aisle, down the middle of that aisle, reciting their covenant promise to each other. Then what they were saying was that if I break my covenant with you this day, may I end up like these dead animals, right? This is one of the most interesting passages in, in, in the Old Testament. So two parties cutting a covenant for future relationship. And if either party broke that promise, the terms would be nullified. War comes back, right? And Abraham would have been very familiar with this ceremony. So in Genesis 15, God used that ceremony to communicate his gospel of grace by making a covenant promise to Abraham that day and to his offspring into the future. All forever, right? God had, God had him bring a bunch of animals, cut them to, sacrifice them, cut them in two, and arrange the halves opposite each, of each other in this aisle. But in verse 12 of Genesis 15, it says this, As the sun was setting, Abram, he hasn't had his name changed yet, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So he's off to the sleep, asleep off to the side before the ceremony even starts. Then in verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and a darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant. The Lord made a covenant with Abram Abram and his seed and, and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates. Blah, blah, blah. And he's reiterating also in this passage all the promises that he made back in Genesis 12, that he would bless him to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So God cut a covenant with Abraham. But when it came time to walk the aisle, Abraham was off asleep on the side. He did not walk the aisle. Only God did by himself, represented by that smoking fire pot and that burning torch. And he walked that aisle, cutting the covenant as one party with Abraham, as one party. And so what God was saying to him on that day was, I make this covenant with you as one party. The whole covenant is therefore based on my word, my promise, by grace, and it's not, your, uh, it's not contingent on your ability to hold up your end of the bargain at all. Not based on two parties' behavior. God's saying, if I fail at this, I am putting all of my deity on the line, and, and you have to do nothing but receive it and believe it. Believe the promise. Just receive it and believe it. Right? That was the gospel of grace revealed from almost the very beginning. And we can even go back farther into Genesis and see, and see the gospel come about. So the surety of the promises of salvation that Psalms 98 te teaches or talks about rests solely on God's faithfulness and doesn't depend at all on Abraham or David or Israel's obedience at all. Never did. Never did. You're just a moralist if you think that, right? 
God remembers his love and faithfulness to Israel and to us in the very same way. And that's the good news. It's all contingent upon his character, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and not on us at all. So you're free to make mistakes. Not that you should willingly make mistakes, but you're free to make mistakes, right? Thinking about how often Israel went astray or Match that with our own fickleness of heart, right? And we realize that restoration, reconciliation, victory, anything good at all, and salvation definitely are all of God's doing all throughout history and not ours. Derek uh, Kidner comments this way. He says, this salvation or this victory is wholly supernatural, a single-handed exploit of the Lord. The supernatural aspect is expressed in the term marvelous things, which is more than a superlative, a standard term for the miraculous interventions of God, such as those at Exodus, to save his people. Andrew, Andrew Mankus reminds us of all these Old Testament prophecies of Christ in a great article like Isaiah 9 Uh, verses 6 and 7, which foretell of the coming salvation in the Messiah and the fulfillment of that Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. He says, for us to, for to us a child is born, this is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, this is what we read at Christmas, right? And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of the government and and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and ever forevermore. Amen to that. Right? And those verses are often quoted during Christmas due to the angel Gabriel's sort of announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, that she will, will become pregnant and she'll give birth to a child who will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. No end. Isaiah's prophecies about the servant are some of the most well-known messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, precisely because they, they speak so clearly and they point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can't get around them, right? The quintessential example of that is found in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And in these verses, Isaiah writes a song in which a picture emerges of a servant who is summed up as sage, priest, sacrifice, servant, sufferer, conqueror, intercessor, the channel of God's grace to sinners, and and in him the holiness and the mercy of God are perfectly reconciled. Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the prophecies in these verses, the one who reconciles the holiness and mercy of God on the cross. And he was as Isaiah 53, 5 says, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Amen. The Apostle Peter described what Christ accomplished on the cross in words which echo Isaiah's prophecy. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, 24. 
The final portrait of the Messiah begins with a promise in Isaiah 56, verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. And this follows on the heels of uh, of the portrait of the Messiah as servant, which comes in the middle of the book and in the middle of time, right? Life goes on after the servant comes to, to, to suffer and to bear the sins of many. And that's where we are right now. God's people are called to live just and holy lives until the Messiah returns as the anointed conqueror then. Salvation and deliverance will come with the arrival of that anointed conqueror. And that's still before us. Now the meaning of the word Messiah is simply the anointed one. A fact which highlighted, is highlighted through the final prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So there's these beautiful images of grace and mercy, but there's also this picture of vengeance. Jesus read these prophetic words in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, if you remember that. And after finishing that, he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back. (laughs) I love this image. And he sat down, and all the eyes are upon Jesus, and they're just sitting there looking at him. And what does he say? He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is Jesus' mic drop moment, right? That's when he dropped the mic and he was just like, you know? But then it tells us he keeps going. He keeps teaching with gracious words. And he could, but he, there, right there, he claimed to be the fulfillment himself of Isaiah's prophecy of being the anointed one. But notice... As I said, this prophecy also tells us that the promised Messiah, Jesus, had the double task of not only salvation, but also of vengeance, right? He's not merely the anointed one who saves us from sin. He is the conqueror who will bring blessing and justice to the world when he comes again at the end of time to judge the wicked, to judge the righteousness, or judge the righteous and make all things new. So meditating on these messianic portraits found in Isaiah and also in the words of Psalm 98, we become people who live life with our eyes set on God in history. And I think we need that more than ever right now. In other words, our current troubles have less hold on us. They don't mean so much with a bird's eye view of God's loving action throughout history, right? where he's taking us. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is this promised king, this promised servant, and the promised future conqueror. Christ is the Savior, and his followers are exhorted to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that has, was set before him, he endured that cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Christian life lived 
with our eyes set on Jesus, not on everything else down here. There's a big difference when you live like that. And although this, these messianic portraits found in Isaiah are each very unique, they only depict one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And unlike Israel in the Old Testament, the church now looks back to the life, death, and resurrection of the servant and forward now to the return of the Davidic king as the anointed conqueror who will right all wrongs at the end of days. Our great hope is not just uh, that Christ died for our sins, but that he will also return one day to make all things new, and we need that. And as we celebrate his incarnation and await the conquering king, we live in the age of the servant right now, don't we? So we also must endure through the trials and temptations which come with life in a fallen world. Like Christ, we must also seek humility, suffering servants, trusting the overall plan of God in history as revealed in Christ, trusting His promises. Because apprentice is not above master, right? And the cross always comes before the crown. But, As Isaiah foretold long ago, the master is returning. He is returning. And in the meantime, we live by faith. No matter how bleak things may look out there or in our lives, one day we will see our Savior face to face, and I honestly believe that, and we will wear the crown of life. And it will be something that is unimaginable. Salvation is such a necessary term in this passage because the exiles have been restored as individuals and collectively as the people of God. God's victory is of utmost importance because this affords personal confidence that God is with Israel, that God was with them at that time. God's final plan of vindication is of utmost importance because it is His righteousness which is that vindication. It saves. His righteousness saves the world. Nothing else, as it always has been from the very beginning, when God set all this stuff in motion, a righteousness which at the end of time will right all wrongs on the last day. And this celebration of both humanity and creation is the key to recognizing the power of seeing God as the final authority and worthy of praise, as we see in verses 4 through 6. The the psalmist calls for a joyful noise to be made in honor of God. This idea of a loud, definite sort of proclamation of God's wonderful ways, like Natalie just said, talked about a little bit the call to worship is more than just some invitation for every believer week to week to enjoin themselves to God this praise should be emanating from us all the time people should see that praise all around us in some ways the people shout out to the Lord in celebration may actually be something which spurs others to hear it as well to seek the Lord as well. So when people see you praiseworthy, see you worshiping the Lord in all the ways of, uh, you can, they may actually be attracted to that. However, the key here is how the earth responds to God in jubilant song, right? 
All of creation is pictured and participating in one grand chorus of worship. And this is crucial to understand how all creation is both subject to God and also called upon by Him to celebrate. The image of celebration or, or creation worshiping uh, references that undeniable adoration which all of creation should bring to the, to the foot of the cross, to, to the Lord. For many, when they come back to God in worship, they have to relearn again what it means to fully submit to the Lord's authority, right? Standing in awe of God and His wonder is to come to Him ready for worship. As the exiles returned from long seasons of feeling estranged and cut off, it was critical for them to learn how to worship again. The idea that all of creation was able to celebrate God was a, you know, a good re- way to remind them that God is still on the throne. He's still in charge of history. So this psalmist wants the exiles to find a way to sing to God. Maybe you struggle with finding that way. Maybe you're bogged down with all the garbage. But we need to find a way to sing to the Lord, right? People are called to sing a new song in verse 1. They're called to shout for joy to the Lord in verse uh, 4. And they used instruments to make a joyful noise in verses 5 and 6. And even to let creation show them how it's done in verses 7 through 8. Have you been outside and just enjoyed creation? Go on a backpacking trip. Oh, my goodness. You can't help but to be worshipful. It's like the double rainbow guy. Remember that guy? If you don't know that, go YouTube double rainbow. It's a funny guy, but anyway. But what a powerful reminder to sing to God with all of our being, right? A connection could be made between Jesus' call to worship God in spirit and truth in John chapter 4 with this worship of God with all of creation for his mighty works or his marvelous works. So while these exiles are learning to worship God again for the way that he had provided and shown himself to be faithful, they were waiting for his arrival to judge the world and to to rule people with equity in verse 9. And the significance, though, right there, is the feeling is not fear. The feeling is is one of confidence in this pending judgment in which they have, right? They, They have confidence there. Instead of being fearful and uncertain about this pending judgment, where they stand with the Lord and all that kind of stuff, the exiles feel a sense of hopefulness about that. Right? Why is that? Because it's about God's promises and not about their obedience. It's about His grace and His mercy and not about how well they measure up at all, ever, never has been. So like us, waiting the return of Christ, there is a hopefulness in that promise. Because we live, we have nothing to fear under the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness covers us. When God looks on us, he sees the perfect record of Jesus. We are safe because of the grace and mercy of God. That's good news. Arthur, and it's not Arthur, it's Arthur. Arthur Weiser rightfully comments, he says, We're told only at the conclusion of the psalm that it's intended for the God who has appeared to judge the world. That God's judgment is awaited with joy and not fear shows how greatly this hope is sustained by the faithful's devotion to God. 
and by trusting God's will to save. God's will to save, right? Their yearning for God and the absolute certitude of God's gracious will prove themselves to be too strong to be overshadowed by fear. The Advent faith prepared the ground within the scope of the Old Testament piety for the fulfillment of salvation through Christ. In other words, they sensed God's grace and mercy then. They knew it was about God and not about them. We live on this side of the Messiah's coming, still awaiting this fulfillment of, the, of His kingdom, right? For His second coming. And we, we might say, we might be kind of arrogant and say, well, we have more to worship about now. But the truth of the matter is God's promises have always been there. They've always been true. They've always been trustworthy. It's always been about God's grace. It's never been about measuring up to the law. He's always been moving history. He's always been moving history towards a time when His righteousness and His judge or, or justice will reign fully over the whole earth. That time is coming. Let's return to worship with a full heart. Let's believe the promises of God with full confidence. Not allowing all these trials, all these tribulations to define us or defeat us. Because we are the people of God. And that is not an arrogant statement. That is a humble statement. Because I just believed it and received it. That's it. So let's believe it. And let's choose to worship. Just as Israel did when they returned from exile. And we'll not do this perfectly. We never will. Until Jesus comes back, probably. But remember, salvation is by God for God's glory. And it is not at all contingent on our perfect obedience. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that these things are true. That you are a God full of grace, full of mercy. You are a God full of equity and justice and righteousness. That you do not let those things go by. That you do right all wrongs. That you save sinners and bring them to repentance that you transform our lives into, to mirror your character in this world. And so we pray that we would do that, we would pursue that well, and that we would worship you with every fiber of our being, with every movement of our face and our hands, the thoughts of our, in our minds, with our eyes and what we take in, with our words and what, what we bring to the world around us, we just pray that you would break our hearts for you, that we would keep our eyes focused on the author and perfecter of our faith as we walk this out, waiting in hope for your future coming. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.